Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted October 28, 2016, we consider lessons for Colombia from as far away as South Africa and Northern Ireland on helping all sides live together under some new version of the government's narrowly rejected peace pact with Marxist FARC guerrillas. Specifically, an article in the new fall 2016 issue headlined, When the Shooting Stops, Transitional Justice Turns Knowledge into Acknowledgement. We'll also point out other top features in the new fall issue, cover theme, History's Ghosts. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Today we have reached the finishing line, the signing of a final agreement with the FARC guerrillas. It is the end of the armed conflict. The best way to beat war was sitting down and talking about peace. The war is over. On behalf of the FARC, I address the nations of the world and ask the people and their governments to stand in solidarity with us, to back us in every sense, so that the continent's most prolonged conflict will become a guidepost and a matter of the past that people will not repeat. International support for Colombia after the peace pact signed by negotiators for its government and Marxist FARC guerrillas this summer was demonstrated most dramatically in early October with the Nobel Peace Prize for President Juan Manuel Santos. Surprisingly, it came just days after even more surprising domestic rejection of the deal's details, albeit in a razor-close national referendum. Whether the international prize builds momentum for modified terms already being discussed with FARC representatives in Havana, or further alienate Santos' political opponents, most notably former President Alvaro Uribe, leader of the No campaign, remains to be seen. But the episode points up the importance of support at home, from both perpetrators and survivors of all the attacks, counterattacks, disappearances, torture, and a death toll exceeding 260,000 over 52 violent years. To deal with so much residual anger, grief, disappointment, and guilt, Colombians may need more pointed public education about the way other countries have overcome bitter violent divisions, as nearby as Argentina and Chile, and as far off as Northern Ireland and South Africa. All built some degree of public solidarity through panels or commissions charged with documenting crimes and other outrages involved, if not always prosecuting them, at least at first, a provision too lenient for Colombia's no-voters. They also rejected earmarking a small number of seats in Congress for the rebels. Peace talks with a smaller rebel group, the ELN, were stalled pending release of its last remaining hostage. The challenge for Colombia and other brutally divided nations is explored in the new fall 2016 issue of World Policy Journal by Robin Kirk, a lecturer in the Duke University Department of Cultural Anthropology and Executive Committee Faculty Co-Chair in the Duke Human Rights Center at the Franklin Humanities Institute. Her article is headlined, When the Shooting Stops, Transitional Justice Turns Knowledge into Acknowledgement, and we discussed it just before the referendum for this podcast. Robin Kirk, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you for having me. Early in your piece comes a definition of transnational justice from a shaper of it in South Africa. Tell us who he is and what he says. I was talking about Paul Van Zyl, who was the Executive Secretary of the South Africa Truth and Reconciliation Commission, 
And what he was saying and what the South African experience really showed is that governments and the parties involved in conflicts can take a very deliberate, very intentional path towards coming to terms with violence in the past. Um, he was executive secretary from 1995 to 1998, a process that's, that was integral to moving South Africa from an apartheid system where the majority black population was routinely and systematically killed and tortured and marginalized to a democracy. A process of transitional justice requires a compromise, you make clear. What kind of sacrifices by former combatants on one hand and civilians caught between them? Well, as, as is very clear, you can't make peace with the peaceful. You have to make peace with your enemies, sometimes bitter enemies. And compromise is a part of any transitional justice process. It means that sometimes combatants have to agree to serve some sort of jail time. They have to agree to some sort of punishment. But more common and more difficult, I think, is that victims often have to agree that people who committed terrible acts of violence are not punished. And that's really one of the dramatic elements of many peace processes and one that Colombia in particular is going to have to face. Talk about the similarities and differences between the situation in Colombia and Northern Ireland, but the lessons to be learned from the Good Friday Agreement there in 1998 and what's happened since. Well, uh, interestingly, when I was uh, a researcher for Human Rights Watch, I spent a lot of time looking uh, at the Northern Ireland process for the ways it's it spoke to the Colombian process. So I, I really dug deep to try to figure out what we could learn from Northern Ireland and apply to Colombia. The reasons why Northern Ireland um, was so instructive was because uh, they too were dealing with irregular paramilitary groups, both in terms of the uh, Irish Republican Army on the left and the uh, loyalist paramilitary, paramilitary groups on the right, the, the, the Protestants in, the, in that case. And what had happened was both uh, combatants for the IRA and combatants for loyalist paramilitaries were serving jail time for acts of violence. Could be bombings, could be killings, um, it could be organizing uh, protests that led to deaths, car bombings is, is something that was very common. And uh, many of them were already in prison. So when, uh, the, uh, uh, when, it, when the peace negotiation was ongoing in Northern Ireland, one of the main and, and most difficult elements was what do you do with people who are already serving time? And that is the case in Colombia as well. You have the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. You have, uh, you have right-wing paramilitaries. You have military officers and, and police officers who've committed violations and who are in prison. But in order to get to peace, you have to figure out a way, uh, and this is one of the main similarities, to decrease prison time uh, and to allow people to get out on parole, some sort of supervised release, uh, and, and then you have to finance how they reintegrate into society. That was a very difficult moment for Northern Ireland to come to terms with, and it will be a very difficult moment for Colombia as well.
Scholars like yourself actually see the debut of transitional justice in the aftermath of Argentina's so-called dirty war between 1976 and 1983, creation of a national commission on the disappearance of persons as opposed to criminal prosecutions. Tell us how it came to be and how it pursued its mandate. Well, just a tiny bit of history on the dirty war. This was a a military government that took control in Argentina after the fall of Isabel Perón. And during that administration, there were literally thousands of disappearances, thousands of executions. Uh, People who protested were um, violently repressed. So when Raul Alfonsín was elected um, to the presidency after the military fell as a result in part of the the disastrous Falkland um, crisis, uh, Alfonsín had to figure out a way to acknowledge the incredible violence that had taken place under military control. So what he did was nominated sort of a a commission of notables chaired by a famous uh, Argentinian novelist, Ernesto Sabato, to take six months to collect as much information as they could and then to publish a report on all of these disappearances. Who was disappeared, where, um, and be able to give this report then to the Argentinian people um, as a testament to what had happened for those um, six to seven years under the military dictatorship. One of the great um, uh, difficulties of this, though, was that the military was not cooperating. At that point, the military was still very powerful. So the amount of information that this Never Again Committee could actually get out of the military and police was, was not the full story, as it were. Initially, you say public reaction was mixed, even though the commission report was a bestseller. Talk about that and how it ultimately uh, became seen as part of a, a milestone, even leading to real prosecution. Well, at the time that the report was published, human rights groups were very skeptical, precisely because of this um, inability that the civilian commission had to compel the military and police to testify. Um, and at that time, uh, there was also a very clear decision made on the part of the democratic government that they would not prosecute people for illegal arrests and for execution. So again, the human rights community was very skeptical of the of what this commission could actually accomplish. But the interesting thing and the, and the reason why Never Again is such a milestone is this really just became a first step to accountability. It was a tangled story. It took many, many years. But uh, through successive presidents and through the um, just determination of the families of victims, they pushed and pushed and pushed successive uh, democratic administrations in Argentina to roll back immunity laws that protected the military and police, to empower civilian investigators, and to insist on more than just an accounting of what had happened. They wanted some level of justice. So today in Argentina, in in fact, um, just this month, new military officers have been indicted and are being prosecuted for human rights crimes committed during the dirty war and are serving jail sentences. So processes like the ones started by Never Again can be terribly slow. They can be sort of halting. But again and again, we've seen over time that they can result in a more robust kind of accountability for human rights crimes. 
Chile also was swept into what one social scientist calls a justice cascade after a decade of violent repression following the U.S.-backed coup in 1973. Its National Commission for Truth and Reconciliation began under significant legal limitation, but eventually had major impact. Yes, uh, I think uh, Chile and Argentina are really... um inspirational tales with you know with some caveats but they're inspirational tales not only for Latin America but for the rest of the world because they're ways in which we can see that consistent pressure by the human rights community at large but more importantly by national groups of victims can lead to not only accountability for past crimes but better forms of democracy that in, that ensure that these crimes do not happen again. I think the the message for Colombia and other countries going through these processes right now is that you have to put a seat at the table for the victims. It can't just be a treaty or some sort of an agreement between, say, the guerrillas and the government, because they're not the ones that suffered the most from political violence. In, in the case of Colombia, it's vital that these civilians who suffered killings, who suffered massacres, who suffered disappearances, who suffered torture, it's absolutely vital that they have a place at the table to be able to talk about what's necessary to create a more robust democracy for Colombia for the future. Talk more about former President Uribe, the no-vote leader and conservative chief rival of current President Santos, once his protege. I gather Uribe considers himself a victim of the FARC violence, uh, though there are also critics of his regime, which you researched. Yeah, I mean, Uribe is an interesting case because his father was uh, killed by the guerrillas very brutally. Um, He was the governor of Antioquia, which is one of the major states in Colombia, and then later president. So he has come out very strongly against this peace pact, but I think now is the time to make a deal and to begin this path of transitional justice, which may, you know, may ultimately end with some sorts of prosecutions and some sorts of accountability. The United States has had its own interesting commissions, one of them also involving you. Um, yes, I was a consultant to the Greensboro Truth and Reconciliation Commission in, here in North Carolina, and that looked into um, the killings of five anti-Klan marchers in 1979. And at first, I was very skeptical of this commission. It, it took place in the mid-2000s. It was looking at a single act of violence, this November 1979 march um, that ended with uh, these five people being killed by members of the Ku Klux Klan in the city. But I ended up really being a convert because I saw how a discussion could involve an entire community. So people came from the community where the marchers had been killed. People came, the families of the marchers came, the city police came, and amazingly, on one day, the members of the Ku Klux Klan came, and they wanted to tell their story of the way they had thought about this day. And I think it was so powerful to see that the draw was really the opportunity to tell your side of the story and, as importantly, to be heard. And in the Greensboro case, um, they came out with some very compelling results showing that the city of Greensboro had really dropped the ball about 
protecting the marchers, but they also put a fair amount of the blame at the feet of the people who had organized the march and who had very intentionally kind of goaded the Klan um, without really considering the effect that that would have on the people of Greensboro. So it, 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 and it ended up being a, a very moving and a very deep exploration of a period in American history. Let's talk more about the kind of reactions uh, to transitional justice efforts uh, from those who survived violence and the loved ones of uh, those who did not. You quote a lawyer who's worked on such operations in Lebanon and Cambodia, as well as at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Right. I mean, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of process. Each country has a very different approach to this model of transitional justice. And I think it's, it's really important to understand that you can't compel family members or people who have suffered violence themselves to come and testify um, and, and then assume that that's some sort of healing process. It, it isn't necessarily. It can be terribly um, damaging for people to over and over again have to kind of relive the worst moments of their lives. And I think it's also very important to understand that um, you can't have it be something that's just for show. You really do have to have deep change that comes out of it that shows people that, you know, that the fact that they've come up, the fact that they've told their stories, the fact that they've relived these moments actually is important because it changes things. It, 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 it means that these kinds of things are less likely to happen again. It can't just be for some sort of quick kind of therapeutic moment, and then you go back to the way things were. There has to be a deeper uh, reform that's embedded in transitional justice for it to make sense. You mentioned the KKK uh, coming to make its case at the, uh, uh, the inquiry in, in North Carolina. What kind of testimony and reaction do we generally see from former combatants during this process? Well, that's a, a very interesting question. I mean, you know, generally not much. Uh, but but in the instances where combatants or perpetrators of terrible crimes have come forward, it's been in, in extremely interesting. I'll just uh, cite one case, which was in South Africa, um, the case of Eugene de Kock, which was a security force leader who was involved in some of the most horrific crimes under apartheid in South Africa. He... Um, offered his testimony uh, to the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission in exchange for amnesty. That was one of the unique things about South Africa. But the commissioners found that he hadn't told the whole story, which was one of the conditions for achieving amnesty, and that he'd committed crimes outside of sort of politics. So he was actually um, convicted and sent to jail for many years. He just uh, got out. He was just released from jail this year. And it's interesting, while he was in jail, he kind of had a very powerful conversion where he became convinced that he had to offer his own reparations to the family members of those he had harmed. He became famous for being one of the few perpetrators to invite family members to speak with him if they wanted to, and he would tell them everything they wanted to know. And it's it's terribly emotional, but most of the time the family members of, who have lost you know, loved ones, 
they understand they're not going to get their loved one back, but what they really want to know is what happened. You know, what were their loved one's final moments like? You know, where are they? Did they say anything? These very simple human details are often the only things they have. And in this case, uh, Eugene de Kock was able to kind of both ask for forgiveness in a way that didn't demand forgiveness, you know, in a very sort of open-hearted way, but then also make his own personal reparations by offering this vital information that so many family members look for. And you note some practical reasons not to go the prosecution route, at least at first, even if the peace agreement should permit it. Problems of cost, uh, priorities, uh, fallible memory, and problems with evidence or lack of it. Yes, because, you know, legal systems have rules of evidence. They have rules uh, um, that lawyers and judges have to operate under. They're costly. So you can imagine, you know, in, in cases like the former, like Rwanda, for example, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda could only really prosecute the very, very top leaders of the genocide. Um, but the interesting and kind of horrible fact about the Rwandan genocide is that most of the killing was carried out by neighbors, neighbors against neighbors, sometimes within a single family. So how do you deal with those kinds of crimes when you're only prosecuting and you only have the resources to prosecute the top leaders. And one of the things that Rwanda ended up doing was creating its own kind of community court system called the Gachacha courts, which were at the community level. And the community members themselves would then determine what the punishment was for those people who had committed genocide. So it's not necessarily going to work in Yugoslavia. It's not necessarily going to work in Greensboro, but it worked in Rwanda. So that's another, you know, again, I'm going back to that point of, of transitional justice has a lot of nuance that depends on the particular histories and culture and politics of the places where violence occurred. Right. You also say some survivors don't want to relive their pain before a judge and jury, but how is testifying or even just observing at a truth commission hearing uh, really any less painful? I, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, in Peru, for example, in some of the highland communities where I uh, also worked as a journalist, um, some communities had already sort of come to terms with the violence that had taken place um, in the war between the government and the Shining Path in the 1980s. And so when the Peru Truth and Reconciliation Commission came to their areas and asked them to take part in hearings, they said no. You know, they said, we've already kind of rewoven the bonds within our community with members of our community that might have gone off to fight with the Shining Path, and we don't really want to take part in a national, you know, kind of healing process. We have already healed ourselves and we don't want to bring up those old memories because those would fray the bonds that we've only recently reconstituted in our own communities. Well, that's a major critique of the transitional justice system. What are some of the other uh, uh, complaints about it? And, and what are the best responses to those critiques from supporters of the process? Well, I think South Africa, again, is another example where, in fact, um, even though the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission offered amnesty to perpetrators in, re in return for their honest testimony, very few white people offered it. Um, very few white people were willing to take part in the hearings, um, and, they, and they basically got away with it. The, the prosecutorial arm 
that the commission should have had was not able to then really threaten them with prosecution if they didn't tell their whole story. So a lot of people who were engaged in abuses during uh, the apartheid years in South Africa got away with it. In fact, most of the individuals who testified before the commission in South Africa were, were black. Uh, and those, they included uh, black soldiers or a police officer who had worked for the government. And I think that's certainly a failing. I think that another failing in, in the Peruvian cases is one of them is where you, the the commission's results aren't intimately um, invested in reform of the government, of the governmental system. So you have, you know, a moment of truth and reconciliation. You have a moment of talking and dealing with the past, and then things go back to the way they were in terms of both racism or inequality or corrupt government. And so people really start to lose faith in this system. And I would just say, you know, as, as someone who is a supporter of transitional justice mechanisms, is that we have to hold countries to account for this. And I think one of the really interesting things that has happened recently is, is it, within the human rights community, we've, we've kind of come to the point where we can say that there's a universal right to truth, that any country that has gone through any level of violence, just as people have an international, a, a universal right to life, they have a universal right to fair trial, they also very importantly have a universal right to truth that the international community should be helping to enforce. Perhaps the most important ingredient of any effort to deal with the past, you write, is a realization that subsequent generations also must deal with the legacy they inherit, which varies country to country. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, you know, here in the United States, we see this very clearly where the subject of race and the subject of inequality is still, is still so volatile. And I think that's because in our education, in our public life, we really haven't come to terms with our own legacy of genocide, say, of Native Americans, of slavery, of African Americans, of inequalities against women. All of those um, elements of our country have been sort of whitewashed. You know, in some parts of the country, school boards are even asking that the curriculum be only uh, elements that, you know, celebrate the United States and celebrate a certain history of the United States. And I don't want to take anything away from how wonderful this country is. I believe it's a wonderful country. But we also have very dark chapters in our history that should be accounted for. And, and going back to the way we started this interview with Paul Van Zyl, who was the Executive Secretary of the um, South African uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, he once said um, that it's not a question of if you will have to confront your past. Every country has to confront it in one way or another. He said the real question is how you're going to confront the past. Are you going to let the past overwhelm you, or are you going to confront it in an organized, intentional, and positive way to try to create a better form of government? And I think in the United States, we really still have a problem with that. And, and you can see it roiling our politics. You can see it, see it roiling our cities. Um, just uh, recently, we've opened the first mu the, the National Museum of African American History, and that's very late. You know, 2016 is the first time we're really acknowledging this history in a formal way. I think that's vitally important, and it becomes part of a broader conversation that we and many other countries have to have. Robin Kirk, thank you. Thank you so much, David. I appreciate you taking the time.
Robin Kirk is a lecturer in the Duke University Department of Cultural Anthropology and Executive Committee Faculty Co-Chair in the Duke Human Rights Center at the Franklin Humanities Institute. Her books include More Terrible Than Death, Massacres, Drugs, and America's War in Colombia from the Public Affairs Press. For the new fall 2016 issue of World Policy Journal, History's Ghosts, she wrote the article headlined, When the Shooting Stops, Transitional Justice Turns Knowledge into Acknowledgement. Also featured in the new WPJ Fall issue, History's Ghosts, you'll find articles on what lessons from history keep being forgotten, on silencing the echoes of Tiananmen, and on the painful legacy of Canada's residential Indian schools. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on discrimination, civil unrest, and suppression in Ethiopia's Oromo region going back more than a century, leading to renewed bloodshed and a national state of emergency. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.